Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. You say we're two or three are gathered. You're in the midst of this, and that's what we have. And we ask you to bless this time. Lord, if anybody's on their way, you ask, we ask that you bring them quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 20. Starting at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that that is a householder, which went away early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw people standing around idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said unto them, Why stand you here all day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. He said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right you shall receive. So when the evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, Go call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning with the last unto the first. And when they came, and when they that came last were hired in the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. And when the first came, came, they supposed that they should receive more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us, which were borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I do you no wrong. Did, did not you agree to, with me for a penny? Take what is yours, and go your way, and I will give unto the, this last, even as unto you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I have done with my own? Is you, your eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. And for many be called, but few chosen. So we're looking at this story that Jesus is giving to the people. And it's a picture of God as we're going to look at it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a householder, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And this is pretty much the way it was done back then, is everybody would go down, you know, if you needed work, you kind of gathered in the center of town. And the owner, you know, work people that had jobs would come out and pick some people to go to work for them. And, you know, as he talked about, make the agreement of their wage, which usually was, they say a penny in this translation, but it's a denarii, which is a day's wage. With the day's wage, you could buy your, your bread and your food for the, for the day. Uh, that was the typical, every once in a while you'd find somebody who'd pay better, but you made enough money to buy your food for the day. And so he went out early and he got some laborers. And in verse 2 he said he, he worked, he talked it over with them and he agreed to pay them a denarii. And they went to work. They're happy, they've got a job, they're going to make their normal, normal day's pay. They're, they all, they're, they're all happy. Landlords, the vineyard keeper is happy. He's got workers. The workers are happy. They've agreed to their, their pay. Uh, then he goes out. It says he went out again at, uh, at uh, the third hour, which is approximately 9, uh, nine 11 o'clock, and somewhere between 9 and 11. And he goes and finds some more guys standing around working and puts them to work. Uh, and in their case, he doesn't talk about how much money they're making. He just puts them to work, and they're just happy to work. Period. You know, they're uh, because most people, you know, they're, hey, I need some money. And, you know, half a, you know, 
missed a couple hours, so if I get you know a few you know a little bit less than a full day's wage, I'm going to be happy because I've got some work. And he does it again on the sixth and the ninth hour, all the way to the eleventh hour, which is about one hour before time, as, as they tell us later on, it's about one hour before sunset, about five o'clock. And all these other people, he hasn't told them how much they're going to make. He just says, go to work. You, you know, you're standing here idle, go to work. I've got work for you. And then it comes time to pay. And this is where the fun time really becomes interesting because he starts with the people that were last and gives them a full day's wage. And as we look at this, we can understand why they were upset, you know, why everybody getting the same pay when, you know, I worked all day and this person at the end of the day works for one hour and gets the same pay. <laughs> we can understand why they would be a little upset. But this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven and Christians. Every Christian gets the reward of heaven. The same reward for heaven, whether we start now, we start one minute before our death, one second before our death, or we spend our entire life ministering for God, or even more, the disciples who ministered long time ago and gave us the book that we're, that we're reading. Uh, we all get the same base reward, and that's heaven. Now, we got other rewards that we know that God talks about. He goes, we, gives us the rewards for our service. When we allow him to work through us, we're going to be rewarded for that. And that's above and beyond the base. But the base is heaven. And everybody gets heaven. And that's hard for some people to understand. I, I had a person I worked with and said, well, you're telling me that a murderer, if they accept Jesus just before they die, they're going to heaven? I go, that's what the Bible tells us. Well, I can't believe in a God like that. Well, I'm sorry, but that's, you know, you, just because you don't understand how bad what you do is. Well, I'm not as bad as a, you know, we went around and around for many years on the topic, you know, that God is totally just. And it's hard for some people to believe that, you know, and that it's justified that everybody gets heaven and gets the whole wealth of God's kingdom. And this is why it's, it's really hard to even figure out what is a reward in heaven when we already have everything? We're heirs to God. Yeah. We have everything. So what is a reward that he's going to give us? We don't really know. He talks about that you'll have rule over many cities and you'll have some, some kind of responsibilities more than somebody else. So it probably has to do with the work that we're going to do for eternity. <laughs> now, and every time I say that, people go, well, work? Well, I didn't think we were going to work. No, God's very clear that we're going to have work. Man was created to work. Adam and Eve were created to work. And that means there's going to be work in eternity because that's what God created us to do. Now, work in heaven, work in a perfect environment is probably not a big deal. And I've had been very fortunate. I've got to work in places where I've totally enjoyed what I'm doing, and it never seemed like work until close to the end, but you know, it never very rarely seemed like it was hard. Usually I was having fun doing what I was doing. And I can picture that's what heaven's going to be. Whatever God's got in store for us to do for work will be, oh, I get to go play all day long, all, 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 all year long at this? God, I thought you were giving me some work to do. And he's going, I did. You just happened to like it. And this is where it is, you know, if you've, anybody who's ever been privileged enough to do something they really love knows what, this, what I'm talking about. Because it's like, 
oh, I get to go to work. I'm just looking forward to it. We're not working for the payday. We're not even working. We're, look, we're just working because God has given us something pleasurable to do. And whatever he gives us to do, we are going to enjoy completely. Uh, it's not going to be a, a big deal. You know, maybe, maybe he'll make somebody polish the gold, gold roads that never tarnish or never get faded so there would be no, no work to it. You know, who knows? You know, who knows what, what work is? You know, because I've always thought, how hard was work in a perfect, you know, to be the gardener of a perfect garden? Yeah. No weeds, no death, no destruction, no wilt, no, no bugs eating your food, you know, destroying your, you know, destroying your plants, you know. How hard was it to be the gardener of that garden? You know, I thank God that it would, a tree would look real good right there. So we're going to plant a tree there. And as I said, maybe it was that they were going to expand Eden. Maybe Eden just covered a small part of the country, world and they were to plant the garden and increase the garden. Who knows? But there was something they were supposed to do. And God gives us work to do. And here he says, the reward is going to be equal for everybody. You're not going to be let, you know, less, lesser of a reward just because you came at the last moment. Now, whether it's the last moment, this talks about the last moment of your life, as opposed to being with God all your life, or the age of the church where the Jews, where the disciples started it and continued. I think it re represents our life more than the entire spectrum. But there are people who believe it's the entire spectrum of the church. And somehow they're going to go, well, we're, see, we, we worked for only an hour before Jesus came. And, uh, and, but it's the same thing, even if it's for our life. You know, there's people who serve God all their life. And sometimes they have trouble when somebody comes in you know, 60, 70 years old, gets saved and gets, you know, miraculously saved and starts working for God's kingdom and make them look bad or whatever. You know, well, why, why did they get all this stuff? You know, how come they're being so blessed? You know, I've, I've been following God for 60 years and this guy comes along and everybody thinks he's so great because he was a sinner, you know, big sinner and got saved, you know. And we see that, we hear that mumbling and grumbling all the time, but God says, it's all by grace. And this is where it becomes critical for us to understand it's all by grace. I may have been following God since I was 10, which I have, but that makes me no better than somebody who'd get saved at the last second. And somebody who got saved at three or four is no better than me because they've got seven years. It's just God says, I'm going to give everybody heaven. <laughs> Equal pay. And he says, you know, and I love this in verse uh, 13. He answered them, friend, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree to pay work for, me, uh, for a penny? Take what is yours and go away, and I give it to you. I give you on this last, even as unto you. So he says, you agreed to this. One of the problems I hear so much in this world today is in businesses, people go, well, it's not fair. I'm not being paid enough. Well, this this what you agreed to be paid. And, you know, I've, I hear this all the time. Oh, I deserve more. Why? You agreed to work for this much. Anything above that is the company being generous, not, not because of anything else. And we have this entitlement mentality. And we're seeing it all the time. People wanted to be paid $15 basically to show up at a job that anybody can do. And, but we deserve it some, some reason, somehow. Because somebody said we deserve it, we deserve it. And God is saying, I'm just going to give you what 
I agreed with you. I, ga I gave you a day's wage. That's what we agreed to. I'm giving you a day's wage. And heaven is a perfect day's wage for us. You know, it's, uh, but he says, you know, he says, I give to you. He says, it's not unlawful for me to be generous. Basically saying it's not unlawful for me to be generous. If I want to be generous and give to the, the people who start at the very end the same thing I give to you, it's mine to give. And, you know, people have to understand that, you know, when somebody's given you something, it's theirs to give. And how many times have we seen somebody who's just ungrateful? They get a gift and they're just, well, it's not big enough. It's not enough. It's not as nice as the one you gave to, you know, see in families all the time. You know, well, you gave so-and-so in the family this gift. Why, do, why am I only getting this much? Because that's all I wanted to give you. You know, it's mine to give you. What are you what, what, why are you complaining? And that's basically what God's saying. You know, why are you complaining? It's mine. <laughs> it was mine to give you and yours to receive. A day's wage is a day's wage. If you don't like it, don't work again. <laughs> And, you know, so here he was saying, and then he goes, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. For many in that are called, but few are chosen. And these are, again, these, Jesus keeps bringing this up. Just because you're last does not mean that you're lesser of a servant to God, and God will lift you up. And as we talk back in here, it says that many will be, will be last, or the first shall be last. And God just basically just saying, we're to serve one another. This is true leadership. And this is the one thing I have seen over the years is I've always tried to work as a manager to, to help my employees, to help individuals and, and lift them up and promote them and make them look good. Now, now, we've all worked for bosses that they have to be the one that gets all the glory. Look what I've done. I got, you know, don't forget the fact that I had 30 people doing the work for me. Look what I have accomplished. And... This is something that Jesus said, you know, if I, your master, have done this when he washed the, the feet of the disciples, you should go out and do no less. In other words, he's saying serve people. If you really truly want to be a leader according to the Christian mentality is you serve others in your leadership. You lift them up. Now, that doesn't mean the leader is worthless. You know, you need leaders. A leader has to be able to make decisions. A leader has to make the decision. We're going to do this. this we're going to do this. We're going to follow this path. We're going to do this. But at the same time, they're lifting up other people and training them. When I was, when I was managing, I always, when something good was happening, I said, yeah, so-and-so is the one that did that. And this person over there did that. And if it was something bad, I took the blame. <laughs> because I didn't, my, I didn't need my bosses trying to hammer my poor people. I would take the blame saying, I, I'm the one that, you know, I put the people in charge. I'm, I, I'm the one that's responsible. And then, now what I did to them is another story altogether. I would go and, you know, discipline them. But for me, it always stopped at me. I wasn't going to, you know, throw people under the bus is the term we use nowadays. You know, you know, I got thrown under the bus. They made me look really bad, you know, and it wasn't really my fault. And here God is saying, I'm going to reward you. Even if you work just a short time, you're going to get the reward of heaven. Why? Because it's grace. <laughs> and people have to understand this. I keep bringing this up because too many people think it's by works. You know, that somehow I've earned God's pleasure. You know, he predestinated me to be saved because I was so good he just couldn't do without me. No, you were just, for whatever reason he chose you, it wasn't because you were so good that he couldn't do without you. And we've all met Christians that are, you know, kind of think that way. 
Look at me. I am, I am so, I am the greatest thing since sliced bread. God just could not do anything. You know, if I wasn't in this church, nothing would happen. And I've met lots of people with that attitude. The one thing I have learned is if you think you're important and God takes you out of the picture, he'll replace you with four or five people and they'll get more done than you got done. And God is very good at doing that. And I've seen it many times. You see somebody who's the leader of some, some big event, you know, some event, and you go, wow, we just don't know how we'd ever get this done without them. And they move on or they die or they get moved someplace else and God puts somebody else. Usually he replaces one good person with two or three people. So you end up with more workers doing more things and more gets accomplished. And you go, wow, God, you are just so wonderful. You've replaced that irreplaceable person with no problem whatsoever. And anytime we think we're irreplaceable, we're deceiving ourselves. Because God will say, oh, you think you're, so, you think you're all that. Let me show you. you know, we'll take you out of the picture and they'll, they won't skip a beat. And there is no irreplaceable people in God's kingdom. The only one that's irreplaceable is the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, we'd get nothing done. But other than that, no person is irreplaceable in any church. Now, there are people that, that stand out. And they may have even have the right attitude. And they're the hard ones to see when, when they die or move or get taken to another church or whatever. And you go, wow, how are we ever going to get by? That person, that person did this. They were in charge of this and that and whatever. And then you watch God just say, okay, let me show you. you know, let me show you what we're going to do, how we're going to replace you. And see them do it. And I've watched it happen so many times. I've seen it happen when I've been moved from other churches. And people go in and do what I did. And oftentimes they do it better than I did. And you go, okay, God, you're so wonderful. And I always told people, you know, if you think you can do the job better than I, than I can. And God wants you to. And the church wants you to. Fine, you, you go do my job. God's got plenty of other jobs for me to do. Because there's always plenty of jobs in the church. There's never an end to jobs. If somebody's willing to step forward and do it. There's never an end. And so I'm going, fine, you want that job? Be my guest. You can have it. I'll go find something else to do. There's plenty of things to do. Uh, I'll lead evangelism. I'll teach Sunday school. I'll do whatever it takes, whatever God wants me to do. And because nobody's irreplaceable, whether they start at the last moment, the beginning moment. And it's fun sometimes to watch people take over a job and do it much better. But you have to be humble enough to let them <laughs> take over that job. There may come a time when God says, you're not the pastor of this church anymore and put somebody else in that might do a better job. I don't know. Until then, I'm going to do the best that I can and train people in the Bible and be used by God. When he's, ready, when he's done with me here, he'll move me someplace. And whether that's to heaven or move me someplace else, I don't know. I don't know and I have no plans to leave here. But who knows what God has planned and so we look, and he says, this is it. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. In other words, you don't know what order you're in just by what you're doing on this world. And that's something we have to keep ready. And then he puts this last statement in. For many are called, but few are chosen. This statement runs all through Jesus' work. Many. Matter of fact, he could have said all are called because there's a general call to all people. God's desire is that all be saved. So he makes a call to all people. Not everybody accepts. And even more, not even all the people who think they've accepted are accepted. And that's when Jesus said, you know, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they name off all these 
religious things they did. I visited the sick. I went to the hospital. I fed the, I fed the uh, hungry. I you know, cast out demons and all these things. And they're going, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. The apostles are a great example of this. Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when he said, one of you is going to betray me at the Last Supper, all the disciples said, is it I? And there's not a one of them that said, well, it's got to be Judas. <laughs> Judas looked good to them. You know, matter of fact, he looked so good to them that they entrusted the money bag to him, which we're told later on that he was stealing from. <laughs> okay. He was stealing from the money bag. He was living out a life in front of the other disciples that they believed that he was good. Uh, and when Jesus said, one of you is going to sell me, they, you, know, you would think that, well, gee, Judas must have been the devil. He had horns on, his, horns on his head and a pitchfork in his hand, and everybody knew who he was. No, he looked to them like the, the one of the better ones. None of them thought it was him. They all thought, well, I could do it maybe, but not. You know, it wasn't that they jumped immediately to him. And we see this in the church and amongst people who say they're Christians. And if you look at them closely, you go, well, what's your spiritual life like? Because that's what God's going to look at. What is your true spiritual life? Am I living in you? Or are you just a good person doing good works? And I know many people that are good people. Give you the shirt off their back, give you everything they own, you know, if you were really in need. And many of them aren't saved. They don't, some of them don't claim to be saved. Some of them probably aren't saved when you really look at their life. They're very nice, kind people, but they don't care about God's word. They, they won't, don't pray. They don't share the, the gospel message. Don't come to church. They'll tell you they're a Christian. But you can go to, go to James and say, okay, show me. <laughs> show me by your works why I should believe that you're a Christian. Well, you know, I, I said a prayer when I was Three months old, I said a prayer. <laughs> Maybe not quite that old young, but, you know, long time ago, I said a prayer. I'm a Christian. Well, saying a prayer isn't what makes you a Christian. Believing in your heart is what makes you a Christian. And we need to make sure people understand that because so many don't. All right, verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Jesus kept telling the disciples over and over again, I am going to die, and I'm going to come back three days later, and yet it was a total surprise to them when he was arrested, crucified, and put into the grave. It didn't seem, and you can't get much clearer than this, this, yeah. this statement. I mean, some of it's been kind of veiled, and we know it from the past, but this is very clear. We're going to Jerusalem, and, and I'm going to be portrayed. Right there tells the disciples that one of the disciples, one of you disciples, some, you know, and the others that walked, because there was about 500 that walked around with him for the most part. There were the 12 disciples plus about 500. So he goes, one of you is going to betray me. Because you can't be betrayed by anybody other than a friend. And he says, one of you is going to betray me to the chief priest and the scribes, and they're going to condemn, condemn me to death. And yet, 
with, even with this very clear statement, they didn't seem to understand. <laughs> and then he describes exactly what's going to happen. You're gonna, I sh and shall deliver him unto the Gentiles. Okay? Who's the Gentiles in this particular case? The Roman government. They're the ones that, they, that Jesus was delivered to because the Jews were not allowed to have capital punishment. They were allowed to have their religion, but the, the Romans did not let them have capital punishment as a prime, crime for breaking their religion. You had to break a Roman law for capital punishment to occur. So he had to be turned over to the Gentiles, and it says to mock. Now, we know what he went through. You know, they, the soldiers put a purple garment on him, the color of royalty. They gave him a crown, a crown of three-inch thorns that they drove into his head. They gave him a, a, a stick to be a scepter. And they mockingly bowed down and, and said, Oh, hail the king. You know, they mocked him and made fun of him. And this alone is enough to stop most people from following Jesus in many times. You know, in America, we got so many people who go, Well, they'll make fun of me. I'll be persecuted. They'll make fun of me. You know, all they're going to do is make fun of me. That is not bad. They've made fun of more people than that in, 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 in vicious ways as they did with Jesus. So they mocked him. And when Jesus says, I've gone through everything that you could go through, he's literally meaning all the sin, all the things. He's been publicly mocked. And it says, and they scourged him. And the scourging used the Roman flagellum. It had anywhere from 7 to 13 brands of off of it. It had a wooden handle and it would come up and then it would split into 13, 7 to 13 leather uh, strips. And embedded in these strips to help make them strike harder were bone and glass and metal. Whatever it did to make it, to make it uh, strike harder. And then they would use the flagellum on to scourge. And Many people, you will hear them say, well, Jesus, you know, that Jesus would have received 39 lashes. Well, the 39 lashes was what the Jews did. They could not give you, they could give you up to 40 biblically, and they would give you grace and give you one less. So they would never give somebody the whole 40. They always gave them grace and, and gave them one less at the, mo at the max. But the Romans had no such law. They could beat you until you were unconscious. The only rule they had is if you were scourging somebody, you weren't to kill them. You could bring them to the edge of death, but you weren't to kill them. And the Roman soldiers, they enjoyed scourging. They thought it was a game. They, they usually would be done with pears, and they would, they would sit there and, and make bets with everybody on who could take the largest chunk of flesh out, of it, out with one stroke. And then, of course, they would sit there and they'd weigh it and measure it and all this after each one to see who won the won it. So they're handling all of this flesh that they're taking out. So we always think that he was just bead and stripes across him, but literally they were cutting flesh off of his body with every stroke. So the scourging was enough to just about kill him. And then he says, they're going to crucify me. <laughs> Now, after they get done with the mocking and the scourging, they're going to crucify me. And the crucifixion was the most horrible death that could possibly be imagined. Nailing somebody to the cross, and most of them weren't nailed. Jesus actually had the worst of the worst because he was nailed. Normally, they just tied them up. And they let them suffer for a week to two weeks on the cross. You know, because, they, because it would be hard to breathe. You couldn't breathe on the cross the way you were hung. 
But Jesus had the worst of the worst. He actually had the nails driven into him. And what you would end up doing is when you died on the cross, you died from, actually you ended up dying a death of drowning in your own blood. Because your lungs would fill up with flu your, the fluid of your blood and you couldn't get rid of it. And you would end up, you'd be hanging there, you'd be your arms in, your body hanging down, you couldn't breathe. So you'd push up on this little pedestal they gave you, which would drive your back up against, against the, the rough wood and you'd get splinters from driving up. Your feet would end up having the nails so you were put right through the nerve bundle. So every time you pushed up, it caused extreme pain so that you couldn't keep pushed up. Then you would give out because you couldn't handle the pain and your body would go back down the cross, driving the splinters back in the cross and you would all of a sudden slam into your arms being hanging there and you usually ended up with broken bones out of the deal because you're pushing up and then you would push down and the way they hung you was you couldn't do either one and even if you weren't nailed, you couldn't keep yourself up long enough. Eventually you would tire and you'd slide back down the cross and then you would hang on your arms till you couldn't breathe anymore and then your lungs would be filling up and you'd eventually die, usually of drowning. And it was a horrible death. It was designed to take a long time. It was torture. And when they came to Jesus and because the priest said, you know, we need to get these bodies off. It's, it, it's under Passover. We can't have them on the hanging here. And they said, okay, fine, well, we'll go break their legs. That's how they hurried the, the death. They would break their legs so they couldn't push up anymore. And they came to Jesus, and after only three hours, he was dead. And that was a very unusual thing. And that's when they drove the spear up into Jesus' side and gave us proof that he was dead. Because water and blood had separated, which meant that his plasma had already been broken, broken down in his body in that period of time. And so when forensic people hear that, they go, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what would happen to a dead person. So they, it actually worked out perfect because they were proving that he died for all these people that come along and say, well, he didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, he just fainted. And the guards were so dumb, they, did, they didn't have an EKG or anything to be able to prove that he was dead. So they buried him when he was only almost dead. Uh, and we hear that a lot from the skeptics, you know, that he didn't die. But the spear up into his chest is what helps prove he was dead. Besides all the beating and everything, he was almost dead before they put him on the cross. But even if he wasn't dead, they put him in a cross and somehow in the, in the cold, damp grave, he woke up in the middle of those three days, walked on feet that had nails, you know, put through the, the nerve bundles, somehow moved a one-ton stone, beat off the Roman elite guard, and then got totally healed in three days and showed up and said, I, I, I rose from the dead. It makes no sense. No. <laughs> the story makes no sense at all uh, for them to say that. There's other people that will tell you, well, he died, but the disciples stole his body. Uh, and they go, again, we've got the same problem. All right, the disciples who are scared to death, hiding in the upper room, afraid they're going to be killed, they ran from him when he was arrested, all of a sudden get bold enough to attack the Roman guard, beat the Roman guard, move the one-ton stone, take the body someplace, who knows where, and gets rid of it so well that nobody ever finds it again. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, that's just it. That, that part, is, they, they lied. That, that, that's a lie. They, they believe that's a lie. 
You know, they, that's their story. They never, they never saw him. Then, of course, we have the story that the Jewish Sanhedrin put out. They went out and bought off the guard and said, all right, we were, we're going to pay you and we're going to protect you because the penalty back then for being asleep on post was death, just like it is in the military today. And they go, we're going to protect you. You're going to tell your, your commanders this story. While we were sleeping, the disciples stole the body. And that was told for many centuries. You know. and of course, the question comes in, while you were sleeping, how, number one, why were you sleeping when you were on duty? Number two, while you were sleeping, how do you know anything? Okay, I can't tell you anything that happens when I'm asleep. I went to sleep, I fell asleep, I woke up. Now, if you were standing over me when I woke up, I can say, you were standing there when I woke up. That's about as much as I could tell you. If my house was robbed and emptied while I was sleeping, I can't tell you who came in and robbed my house while I was sleeping. <laughs> and yet, the lie that they were told to do is, while we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. You know, right there, number one, they're sleeping when, the de when it's a death penalty to sleep, and then number two, they're telling you what happened while they were asleep. Uh, so the whole story just blows apart. And when you point that out to people, they go, oh, well, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. You know, the only story that makes sense is Jesus died, God resurrected him, <laughs> and he came out victorious. And he was seen by so many people. Paul in, in Corinthians said, you know, if you don't believe me, go talk to the 12 disciples, uh, to the 11 disciples, they're alive. Go talk to the, up to 500 people who saw him after he was alive. You don't, you don't think it was me. <laughs> Go back, there's 500 of them alive. And this was at a time when most of them were still alive. You know, if you were a skeptic and you really wanted to prove, you know, prove that he was lying, you'd go back and talk to them and find out. Uh, and if you imagine if you had a court case that had 500 witnesses, you'd be busy, you know, even if you only gave them a, you know, a minute apiece to give their testimony, you've got 500 minutes, you know, almost 10 hours of you know, about 10 hours of testimony with just one minute of, of, of witnessing. And, you know, that's not how much you would give them, you know. So you're talking about a ton of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's telling the disciples, this is all that's going to happen to me. And he goes, and by the way, after all of this, I'm going to rise on the third day. Okay, they're going to kill me. They're going to think they've won, and on the third day I'm coming back. And yet, when Jesus was arrested, they acted totally surprised. When he was scourged, they didn't understand it. When he was on the cross, they didn't understand it. And when he rose again, they didn't believe it. Even though Jesus told them that's exactly what was going to happen. They didn't believe it. And the interesting news on that was the one who got to testify about Jesus' resurrection were women. And we've talked about this. Women had no rights. They could not even testify as an eyewitness in a court case. If somebody committed a crime in front of the woman, the woman could not be the witness against them. And yet God says, I'm going to let women be the ones that are going to tell the men, I rose from the dead. Which is, one again, one of the proofs that the Bible has got to be true. Because if the disciples were making up a story, the women would not be the ones telling the people that Jesus rose from the dead. Number one, they wouldn't have been cowering and hiding in the upper room. 
At least one or two of them would have been the brave ones going down there and getting, checking this out. You know, I'm the, I'm the one out there showing, up, showing off. Uh, and the whole idea that a woman was the one that gave the first testimony would have been ludicrous in their day, which is one of the proofs that it has to be a real story because otherwise it wouldn't have been told. It would not have been told this way. It would have been a disciple bravely going down to, to face the Roman guard to, to see Jesus if the, men had written, if the men had lied about this. And so it, all these little proofs in there that people overlook. And you know, a lot of people don't like to admit that the women is a, you know, is a proof of it because of our day and age. You know, women have all these rights and everything. So you know, that's, you're being sexist when you say, well, I'm sorry, we've got to put yourself in their time, not our time. Yes, in our time, it wouldn't be a proof at all that the Bible was written was true. Because having women testify happens all the time, you know, and it's not a problem to us. They didn't have cell phones to take your pictures of it. Uh, you know, we need, that, we need that cell phone picture of Jesus. To, you know, here's my proof. <laughs> but, you know, Jesus tells them, and, and even back a couple chapters ago, from this time, Jesus told them of his death, burial, and resurrection. And over and over again, he's trying to repeat this. And, you know, we, we look at this and we've talked about why didn't they hear? Well, because it didn't fit into their game plan. They chose not to hear because it didn't make sense to them. We're following the Messiah. The Messiah's got one purpose in this world. It's to make Israel the number one nation out there. And he's going to get rid of Rome. And, and Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world. And Jesus, we don't understand what this death stuff you keep talking about because that doesn't compute. It does not compute. And we tend to do this anyway, even in our Christianity. If something goes against what we believe... Even though it says it in the Word, oftentimes we'll go, doesn't compute, not going to consider it. You know, be a servant to everybody, uh, no, doesn't make sense to me. I, I want to be the leader. I want to be the one that's being, being, getting all the blessings. God uh, doesn't, this, this servant stuff doesn't, uh, uh, can't be. You know, God, you want us to give us, give you our money? You, you want us to give you 10% minimum? And you're going to bless the rest? Uh-uh, doesn't make sense. I can't, live, I can't live on what I've got. And you want me to give you some of it? And God says, yeah, just do what I'm telling you. You, know, you want me to share you with other people? I don't, even, I don't even talk to my friends very much. And you want me to talk to non-Christians? You know, all the things that we can do that just say, doesn't compute, doesn't compute, not going to do, until finally gets hammered into our brain. And we go, oh, maybe I should obey. And it's just exactly what's going to happen to the disciples until they get, and even after he rose from the dead, after the women told them that he had been res resurrected, they still are cowering in the upper room with no courage together. Even after the women came to them and said, you know, he rose. He, he came back. It wasn't until Jesus appeared in the upper room with them that they got any courage. And then we know that the first time that Thomas wasn't with them. And Thomas was the one that said, you know, well, I don't know what's going on with you guys, but, you know, I watched him die. He's dead. And until I can put my finger in his hand and my fist in his side, I won't believe. And then when Jesus appeared again to them, Thomas didn't even, doesn't say Thomas did it. He just broke down and he saw and he, and he believed. And he, that's when he said, blessed are you for you saw, but more blessed are those that will believe your testimony and 
But again, the disciples are cowering, shaking in their boots because they never believed. And they didn't even believe that Jesus had resurrected when the women told them. Peter and John raced to the, to the tomb and found an empty tomb and still did not motivate them to go out and share the gospel right then. They went back to the upper room and said, okay, well, tomb's empty. You know, the women are right, the tomb's empty. Uh, but we don't know what's going on. We don't know who took the body. We don't know what's going on. And, but again, just as we talk about so often, we can't judge them too harshly. Because we might have done worse if we were in their place. We might not have been in the upper room hiding. <laughs> you know, we might have said, forget this, I'm going to Galilee. You know, he's dead, I'm going to try to get as far from Dodge as possible so that I don't get arrested. Because that was what they felt they were facing. They had hung their hat on the Messiah, and now he's dead. Every time there had been somebody claiming to be the Messiah, gathering followers who got arrested and killed, their followers were put on crosses very quickly thereafter. The, the disciples were absolutely sure, we're next. We're next. We don't know when they're coming, but they're coming for us. And Jesus' resurrection changed it to a very bold, they're out in people's faces all of a sudden once they finally get baptized in the Holy Spirit with the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit flows on them and then they start preaching to the point that eventually they all died. Every one of the disciples except John died a gru gruesome death. Uh, and, and it wasn't for lack of trying in John's case. Uh, Rome tried to boil him in oil and he just enjoyed a hot bath. <laughs> Uh, they tried to poison him, and it didn't work. They sent him to the Isle of Patmos, you know, hoping that the crazy people, uh, insane, crazy, uh, dangerous, insane people would kill him. Didn't work. So they finally let him die of old age and just left him alone. But all the others died horrible deaths. Paul beheaded. Thomas charged down in the street with a spear uh, in, 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 in India. Uh, Peter, by legend, says that he was crucified, and he said, I don't deserve to die the way my Lord did. Crucify me upside down. And, and it's questionable whether he was actually crucified upside down, but he was crucified. Uh, his request was to be crucified upside down. Uh, some were torn, in, torn into four pieces by, by animals. They would tie them up on, you know, tie their legs and, and arms to animals and then chase the animals off and tear, literally quarter them. Uh, they died terrible deaths, but they died knowing that they were serving Jesus. <laughs> and again, that's one of the proofs that Jesus rose from the grave because they maintained, we saw him. We saw him. Now, people will die for a lie, but they won't die for something they know is a lie. And they were saying, we saw Jesus. Yeah, if they were in the upper room yeah. dying, it didn't go as far as it did. And to actually die and to say, we saw him. You know, at that point, you will die. I mean, we see Muslims all around the world dying for a lie, but they believe the lie. You don't knowingly die for a lie. When, you're, when, when it comes down to extreme measures and you're lying, you will go, well, you know, hey, uh, uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not telling the truth, actually. You know, this is, you know, give me some grace here. But they all died confessing that they had seen Jesus. So we know, again, a proof of 
the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Now we end up with an interesting story on this next one. Verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What will you? And she said, Grant me, grant that these my sons may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I shall be baptized with? And they said unto them, We are able. And he said to them, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with my baptism that I am to be baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard this, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. And Jesus called them and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and that they are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, for but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of the Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and give his life a ransom for many. So here we have an interesting picture. James and John are the children of Zebedee. They're also known as the Sons of Thunder. And this is kind of interesting. This kind of is the mother's heart, you know, coming up to, to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, you know, I want, I want you to do something for me. Uh, and he's going, what do you want? And she goes, make my, let, make my two sons sit on your right and your left hand. And these are the two positions of most authority. Right hand, the approved side, and then the left hand is the lesser approved. But when you're sitting on that person's side, you're approved. And he's saying, Make my sons number one and number two men in your kingdom. She didn't believe either. Yeah. She's not believing this. You're going to die stuff either. It doesn't make sense to her. Uh, she still says you're going to have your kingdom. I know you're the Messiah. You're going to have your kingdom. Uh, when you get, when, when she makes yourself ruler, make my sons number one and number two. Okay, this, uh, as you know, is going to go over real well with the other disciples. Even though it's mom asking it, it's like they're probably thinking, oh, yeah, you had to go get mom to, get mom to make this request for you. Um, but Jesus' answer is quite interesting. You know not what you ask. You know not what you ask. How often do we pray for something from God and, and God basically is answering, you don't know what you're asking for. When we read our biography, sometimes we'll, they'll tell us this. You know, and God answered in a way I never expected. He did something I never expected he would do. You know, and we read their stories and go, wow. You know, maybe you shouldn't have said that prayer. Yeah, I like what happened to you, but maybe you shouldn't have said that prayer. Look, what, look how hard life got for you. And he's saying, you don't know what you're asking. You know, and he goes, are you able to drink the drink? Now, he'd already told them what was going to happen. Yeah. That they still don't know what they're, what they're agreeing to. Are you able to drink the cup of death? Are you willing to be baptized into these trials that I'm being baptized into? And their answer was, yeah, we're able. Sure we can. We can do, we can do anything. We're, we're your followers. We can, you know, as long as, we're, as long as we're as number one and number two, we'll follow you with anything. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's kind of funny to see this you know, and how much they brag and everything, but it's also sad because I see it so often and I've seen it in myself and I've seen it in other Christians. 
I'm just ready for you, God. Whatever you ask me to do. Okay, we're going to study evangelism. We want to go out and evangelize. Okay, ready to go. All right, we're going to do it. Nope, got to be busy that night. Got to be busy that day. Well, you've been busy for the last five weeks. Well, I'm a very busy person. Uh, well, we need to get out. Well, I'm ready. <laughs> you ready except when we're ready. <laughs> yeah. And this happens not just evangelism, but everything. You know, we need, we need a teacher in this class. Well, not me. I'm not ready to teach. But you were just telling me how much you know about the Bible and that you're ready to... Nope, not me. I'm not... When in, and unfortunately, usually just like this, when it comes time, they run the other way. When Jesus is arrested, all the disciples abandon him. Now, Peter's a little brave. He kind of walks, walks around at a distance. John, John sticks around. John is actually probably the bravest of all of them. He actually is in the court. He's the one that brings Peter in when Peter denies Jesus. He's at the cross when Jesus is dying. And Jesus looks down and says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Uh, so John is right there. John is actually the bravest. He's the youngest of them and kind of the bravest, or at least the most stalwart. He's willing to take his life in his hand for Jesus and probably was trying to protect the women at the cross, you know, type deal. But he was one who was able to go out, you know, so he's almost deserving all of this. And they say, yeah, we're able to. And he says, you will drink of the cup. You will be baptized into death. And we talked a little bit about how every one of the disciples died. And most of them died gruesome deaths. And it says, but to sit on my right hand and my left hand that is not mine to give. The Father is going to be the one that decides that. Jesus is sub submitted to the Father in all things. And this is something that we have to really understand, and it's hard to understand. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. They're all the same power. They're all the same eternal being. They're all God. They're all, they're all equal. And yet each one of them subject themselves to the Father. The father is the head. Because somebody has to be the head. In any relationship, somebody has to be the head. And the son and the spirit submit to, to the father. Not because they're inferior, but just, okay, you're making the decisions, we agree. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't bring them into the decisions. In a, in a marriage, the husband is the head of the family, but that does not mean he ignores his wife and treats her as a subservient person if he's smart. He goes, what do you think? You know, I've brought my wife into many decisions. I've not always agreed with everything that she said, but she has also saved me from making some really dumb decisions in my lifetime. Because she says, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. Puts a stop on it. Well, why don't you think it? Sometimes she doesn't know. She just doesn't think it's a good idea. And she sees things sometimes that I don't even begin to see. And so she has been a good check. Doesn't mean I always have done what she says and led the family. Sometimes led the family in good things by not listening to her. Usually it's been leading into bad things when I don't listen to her. So, but we take that input. The father took, takes the input of the, father, the son and the spirit. They're not subservient. They're not you know, uh, just slaves to him. They have input, but they say what you do. We're going to follow. And Jesus here says, it's not mine to give you. <laughs> you know, the Father is going to give this to who he has already planned to give it to. But you are going to suffer. You're going to go through everything you said you were going to do. You said you couldn't do it. You get to prove it. And you might get your reward. You might not. But you're going to now do what you said you would do. 
And then we see this little vignette in verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. Uh, they were not exactly happy. Uh, whether they thought they put mom up to it or they just thought their mom was a little too bold or they were like probably upset that they didn't think of it first. <laughs> you know, why didn't I go up there first to do this? But, you know, you guys think you're better than us? Well, you know, most of them have been pretty close, but, you know, we're, we're just as good as you. We've been doing the same things you're doing. You know, why should you be raised up in this, this position? Uh, you know, how, how dare, you know, probably more like how dare you beg for this position? You know, he's going to give it to who he wants, you know, and you should just be well ready for whoever he gives it to. And so they were upset. And we see this in churches a lot. When somebody is raised up by God to do something, there's a lot of jealousy a lot of times. You know, even pastors will do it. You know, your church is bigger than mine. It's growing faster, this, that, or the other thing. And they compare themselves to each other and they get jealous of other pastors. And it's really not a good place to be. You know, I've seen people get all bent out of shape. You know, well, why does so-and-so get to be the teacher? I can teach. Well, uh, I think they're the better teacher. They're the one that God put, you know, asked me to ask. You be ready on the next time we have a class. We're going to have another class eventually. Be ready to teach. You know, and that's usually just it. When you finally come to, I don't want to teach. Well, why did you make such a big deal out of it six months ago when you didn't get it? Uh, and we see this all over the place that people get jealous. Whether they wanted it or not, they get jealous. Uh, when I would promote people in the, in the workplace, somebody would always be jealous. Well, it should be my job. I, I've been here three months longer, or I can do that job. Well, this is the person who's been showing they can do it. You know, well, you might be able to, but you have not been showing me you could. I think that they're ready. You haven't shown me you're ready. Well, let's say, you know, and they mumble and grumble about it. That's what they're doing. You know, how, how dare they ask? How dare they want to be promoted above us? And Peter probably has the biggest reason because he seems to be the oldest among them. You know, and all of a sudden, he's got these young guys trying to say, you know, we should be, we should be up there and... By rights, you know, he's thinking, what's wrong with you guys? I'm the oldest. If anybody's going to get it, it's going to be, be me. I'm going to be the one sitting at his right, at his side. And they don't know what they're asking for. And they don't know what they're asking for. And they, and they haven't listened because he just told them what they're going to get in, what they're in for. Uh, but, you know, we do it all the time ourselves. You know, we never fully understand what it is we're asking God for until we go through what it is we're going through. And it's always for our good anyway, even though we're not going to think it's for our good when we're going through it, unless we truly believe God's word. And we'll tie up with Jesus' answer. He says, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they, they that are great exercise authority over them. So he goes, okay, you all want to be leaders. You want to have the authority. You want to be in charge. He goes, that's what the world does. The world tries to be in charge to boss people around. And we've all seen people who get promoted into the, being a boss and all of a sudden they go from being a good leader, which is why they get picked to be a boss, to, to all of a sudden becoming Hitler overnight. I got a title, I'm in charge, you've got, to, you've got to listen to me. You've been listening to me for months, but now you've got to listen to me. And this is what he's saying. You know, the world does that. The world wants to be the boss. The world wants to be the dictators. But, but it shall not be so among you. For whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. In other words, serve them. 
Do what's good for them, not what's good for you. Because the world will say, I want, give me. I'm the one in charge, you know, I want all your honor, I want, I want the rewards for it, I want everything, I want you to make me look good. And Jesus is saying, you're going to minister to other people. If you really want to be great in God's kingdom, you want to be the leader in God's kingdom, you serve others, you make them look good, you make them be experienced. And it says, for even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life in a ransom for many, he says, I came to die. You haven't understood this yet. You're still not going to understand it after this phrase. But, you know, I just told you I'm going to die and come back. He goes, I'm I came to die. At the upper room, he bows down at their feet. He puts, a, he puts a towel around himself, his waist, and washes their feet. And we've talked about that. That was the job of the most inept, incompetent servant. The servant that was the least servant that you had in your house you know, they broke the dishes when they carried the dishes. They, they would sweep the floor and knock the window out or whatever, you know. The incompetent servant got the pleasure and honor of washing the people's feet when they came in the door. Jesus did the most incompetent servant's job at the Last Supper, washing the feet of the disciples. And this is what he's saying, I came to serve. He goes, you know, really, if I, was the, if I was the leader of the Gentiles, I'm, I'm in charge. I would have picked one of you. One of you, go. We don't have a servant. One of you, go wash everybody's feet. In other words, he'd be pointing and saying, you're the incompetent one. Go, go wash their feet. Because I want to show you how you were supposed to be as a Christian. You serve others. And, you know, this is important for us. What job is too small and insignificant for us to do for, for God? If there's any job, then we don't have the right attitude. You know, if we go, God, that's just, you know, you want me to clean those stinking toilets out there that, you know, 20 people have used in this last, last uh, hour? Uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. And God says, that's what I need done right now. Okay, you know, washing the feet. <laughs> you know, people right now will make a big deal. There's churches that do foot washing ceremonies, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But that doesn't have the same meaning that it did when Jesus was alive. You know, the equivalent would be clean the toilets, go pick up the, you know, the, the animal messes around the property, you know, from, you know, this insignificant, stinky job that nobody wants, that anybody can do, but nobody does. And God says, do those. And if you really do those, then I can elevate you. If you have the right attitude, I'll elevate you. If you're the one that's really ready to serve, and I've seen different people in the church. They want to be recognized. Look at me. Oh, we're, we're having a dinner. I got to go first. You know, I got to be first in line for the dinner. Why? Because I'm important. I'm going to be the singer during, you know, during the second half of it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, I just preach my heart out. I got to be the first one in line. No. You know, let others go first. Let others be served. Matter of fact, if you really want to be the servant, go find somebody that's having a hard time and get their food for them. You know, be their servant. And that's what Jesus is saying. I want you to be servant to one another. And you know, if everybody's trying to be the servant of one another, a lot of humility going on. Nobody trying to demand attention. And, but it doesn't usually happen, unfortunately. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we ask you to help us learn to be a servant one to another. For all that are going to listen to this message, Lord, that they will catch hold of it that to be saved is to turn your life completely over to you, to get a new heart and to make you Lord and master of their life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.